Hello and welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and today's guest is Ian Clug, Chairman of Brisbane Marketing. Well, thanks for joining us on another episode of the Arate Podcast. And today I'm really pleased to be able to bring Ian Clug as our guest. Uh, but before we get into that conversation, let me tell you a little bit about the background of this podcast and a bit more about Arate and myself. Uh, for those of you who have listened to a few of these podcasts already, Arate is a Greek word. It means the fulfillment of one's full potential, or as Homer used it, uh, where heroes gather to realize their full potential. And Arate Executive is a business that I've owned for almost seven years. Uh, where we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients across Australia. One of the things I haven't discussed uh, on the podcast so far is the fact that I probably get at least 15 senior executives a week who either give me a call or send me an email saying, oh, Richard, I've been referred to you. I'm looking for a new job. I'm hoping I can meet with you to get some advice about my job search. And uh, unfortunately... I'm not in a position to meet with all of those 15 people and so I tried to think of a way that I could essentially give them as much assistance in their job search as possible whilst being protective of my own time. So earlier this year I wrote and published a book called Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, which is essentially a step-by-step -step guide as to how to manage your job search in the new environment, particularly in relation to LinkedIn. And I've also recorded a webinar uh, called Always Stand Out, where both Fiona Cochran and I spend about two, two and a half hours really getting into detail about using a lot of these techniques in relation to your job search. And we do a lot of live demonstrations of particularly things on LinkedIn and uh, examples of resumes and uh, interview questions and all sorts of things like that. So if you're interested in either the book or the uh, recorded webinar, you can find details on our website and I'll also put some links in into the show notes of this podcast. And of course, the podcast is here to enable me to interview those people who have achieved great things in their career, either as CEOs or non-executive directors or potentially in other walks of life so that people who listen can learn from them and hopefully uh, apply some of the uh, tips that they'll pick up in terms of their own job search to accelerate their career to their full potential. And on that note, I'd like to now introduce you to today's guest, Ian Clark. Ian Clug began his career as a chartered accountant with organisations such as Coopers and Librand and Pitcher Partners. He then decided to move into a portfolio career and has held multiple board and committee roles across a wide variety of sectors. His current portfolio consists of Chairman Brisbane Marketing, a role he's held since 2006, Chairman of Place Design Group since 2010, Chairman, Lord Mayor's Economic Development Steering Committee since 2011. Chairman, Water and Carbon Group since 2014. 
and director of the Brisbane Festival since 2014. So Ian is one of these people that's been able to build a strong personal brand as a highly competent chair and non-executive director, and he continues to add value across a wide variety of organisations here in Queensland. I'm delighted to bring this discussion to you with Ian Clug. So let's go to that now. I really appreciate you, Ian, uh, offering an hour of your time to uh, come and talk to us about your career and uh, lessons learned along the way, key milestones, anything else that you feel could be of interest to those who are wanting to walk a similar path themselves in the future. I like to start by just going right back to the beginning and talking about you know your childhood and where you grew up and what your family was like and early schooling, etc., um, and then take the conversation forward from there. All right, okay. Well, thanks, Richard, and thanks very much for having me here. Uh, my early life, it's, uh, it's all fairly unremarkable. I'm the, I'm the youngest of three boys, and um, I was uh, born here in Brisbane, and uh, I grew up in, uh, in Rainworth, or South Barden, as it's uh, often called. Went to Rainworth State School, and um, I'm the... Uh, I'm first generation Australian. My parents are, are migrants. They came from Czechoslovakia mm -hmm. uh, post-war in mm -hmm. about 1947. And uh, my father uh, did medicine here and became the local GP. So we got to see uh, a lot of the... Uh, uh, a lot of the local environment and uh, obviously having your father as the local GP uh, sort of elevated you in some form of uh, in some form um, but as I said look it was fairly unremarkable I um, uh, went to a state school grew up in a very very typical Australian Brisbane uh, environment uh, after after leaving state school I went to uh, I went to Churchy Anglican Church Grammar mm -hmm. School, as it's now uh, as it's called. Uh, again, followed in the footsteps of my two older brothers who both went there, and uh, and just uh, really enjoyed my schooling very much. I was one of those who, uh, uh, yeah, I enjoyed school. I reasonably enjoyed the study side of it and had a had a modest aptitude for that, uh, and engaged in uh, pretty much. Uh, all sports, uh, along with everybody else. When I when I finished school, uh, I went to went to University of Queensland and uh, muddled around with a few different things with computer science, as it mm -hmm. was called then. Uh, but ended up doing a um, uh, my first degree was a Bachelor of Arts, and I uh, did a double major in Human Movement Studies okay. and uh, attempted to do a single major in Mathematics. Uh, I was much better at the human movement side of things and I, I was interested in that because um, I was a, um, I had a great interest in, in playing squash mm -hmm. in those days and achieved some success. I was, a, uh, I was a Queensland junior player in squash and while I was at university I became the All-Australian uh, University's squash champion and mm -hmm. I held that title for two years. Mm. And uh, so I, I sort of harboured some sort of deep desire to be a, a professional squash player and hence my interest in, um, uh, in sport. Uh, being a professional squash player, so I, I had my uh, watershed experience when 
I think it was the early 80s, we, um, the, the world team squash titles were played here in Brisbane. Mm. And I well, either had the good fortune or the misfortune to play a young up-and-coming Pakistani player by the name of Jahangir Khan, who had just won uh, his first of, I think, six or seven British Opens. And the British Open was considered to be the World Championships. Mm -hmm. And uh, by that stage, I think I was in my very early 20s, probably 21 or 22, and he won his first British Open at the age of 17. Mm. So I, had, I played him and it just became patently obvious to me mm. uh, that he was so infinitely better, mm. faster, more skilled in every possible way in a squash court. Uh, it did actually change my view of what the future might hold. Right. Uh, and as good as I was, and I was, I was quite good, I was nowhere near. Sure. I, I just was, it was a different game altogether. Uh, at that point, I thought, well, this isn't looking too good career-wise. And um, now, in fact, I, was talking, I spoke to my eldest brother, Michael, who uh, at that stage was uh, already a lawyer, and he said, look, why don't you go off, you, you finish your human movements degree, why don't you go off and do a, a commerce degree? So with all that mathematics, he said, you'll find it terribly mm. easy, mm. which was a slight uh, overstatement of the facts, but but I actually did... I took his advice, I went off and got a commerce degree, which only took me about 18 months right. for all the stats and maths and everything that I had. And along with everybody else, I just uh, went along to the interviews with back in those days, which was was the, I think it was the Big Eight, who were now the Big Four, right. as a result of all the mergers. And um, I applied for a job and I was fortunate enough to get a job with what was then Coopers and Library, mm -hmm. which became, ultimately became PwC. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I started with them and in a sense, the, the rest is history. Mm. I spent uh, nine years then with uh, Coopers and Library, two of which I spent in, uh, in the UK working in the London office, which was a fabulous experience. In fact, it's where my uh, first child was born, our daughter. And um, I came back, so, and I specialised in taxation. Mm -hmm. uh, started off, did it, as everybody did, I spent a few years in audit. It uh, wasn't entirely to my liking, but I learned an enormous amount about business, as I think I continued to do uh, throughout my whole career. Now, I think chartered accounting is just a fabulous career if you want to learn about business. Mm. And audit is a great way to get an insight into how businesses run and mm -hmm. what people do. But, uh, so I did a few years in audit uh, and uh, yeah, had some fabulous jobs. I was in charge of the uh, audit of the construction of the Wyvernhoe Dam mm -hmm. at, at the time. And uh, so you really did see lots of big transactions. When I went to London, I worked in corporate tax there and saw a lot of cross-border transactions. Um, there were much bigger transactions, as you would expect, uh, in London uh, compared to what you see sure. here in Brisbane. From a taxation point of view, it was very helpful for me because uh, uh, the UK already had a capital gains tax and uh, uh, that was at the time when uh, Australia was just introducing a mm -hmm. CGT here. So I got a head start mm -hmm. uh, with that when I came back. Uh, and then I came back to, came back to Brisbane uh, our family was growing at that stage. We, our next child was born just as we arrived back home. And I, um, uh, 
I was offered a partnership essentially a couple of years later in a smaller boutique firm. Mm -hmm. It was Douglas Heck and Burrell at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a strong taxation firm and, and that suited my skill set and they were looking for a new tax partner. Uh, and the interesting thing about that, I was very attracted to that firm, I think because of the, uh, I think, boutique nature of it. Uh, it was really, uh, you got a greater sense of owning your own business. Mm -hmm. and uh, But it also had a, a share registry business, and mm -hmm. I've always had a strong interest in the share market. And, um, and the share registry business was quite unique. Um, that typically was a business that was always... Um, the domain of accounting firms and chartered accounting firms in particular. But as it became more, uh, I suppose, uh, more digitally intensive, more software-based, more about technology, uh, a lot of the firms got out of it. But mm. uh, through either you know good luck, good management or sheer stubbornness, uh, we, we stayed in the game. We uh, All of our software was proprietary software and... Uh, um, and we built it up ultimately, uh, and it wasn't my area. I remained in tax, but because mm. it was part of the firm, we all sure we all had a, a strong interest in it, financial and uh, operationally. And um, uh, we probably had at that time about uh, we acted as the registry for at least more than fifty percent of the registered uh, of the listed Queensland companies. Right. Uh, had a very good relationship with all the brokers and uh, and I think at the time, and we ultimately sold that off to one of the, um, I th it was called ASX Perpetual at the time, mm -hmm. which ultimately became uh, Link Market Securities, mm -hmm. uh, which is what it is today. And uh, so that was a really good, um, uh, that, that was a great experience. Uh, and um, once we sold the registry, um, I stayed on at the firm for a few more years, um, uh, happily in my role, and then um, at about the, probably roughly about the age of 50, mm -hmm. I think it was, um, I decided to, to leave the firm and pursue a career in, uh, uh, pursue a career as a non-executive non director. Mm -hmm. uh, I already had um, a couple of directorships um, and... Uh, uh, but I decided to take the leap at that point in time. I thought, no, was it a good time or not? I think in retrospect it was it was a very good time to do it. Uh, but it was a leap of faith because I really didn't have a great deal to go to. Mm -hmm. And uh, But it's been... I, I found it enormously rewarding uh, to do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, had anybody asked me, you know, at the age of you know 48 or 47 or 49 even you know what are you going to do for the next 10 to 15 years i think i probably would have just said um very happy doing what i'm doing mm. uh, i did enjoy it <clears throat> and as i i said you know, i think like, you know chartered accounting is just such you know, for me it was a great career mm. you know when i started i knew absolutely nothing about business you know my father was a medical practitioner uh, there were no other family members that we had here uh, in Australia who uh, really were in business of any kind. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think everything that I know today, um, I've learned. Sure. Uh, as Out of part interest, of that career. what does your second brother do? Michael's a lawyer. So, Michael, eldest brother, uh, Michael, is a, yeah, Michael's a lawyer. Our, the middle brother, Peter, he's a psychiatrist. Okay. Uh, he right. practices uh, in Sydney. And uh, an accountant, so sort of you know, any 
any father's dream, you know, just sort of any mother's <laughs> dream, sort of got the lawyer, the doctor, and the accountant. We've always said that we, we really needed a fourth brother who could actually do something, right. uh, someone like a plumber or a builder or something <laughs> like that. Probably be able to buy all of you combined. Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. The plumbers that I know. Yeah. Oh, well, that's interesting. I think, um, you know, and that's a great sort of a quick summary of your early career. And, um, and certainly... Uh, You've been able to develop a very sort of broad and interesting board um, portfolio. And a lot of the people who come and see me and who will be listening to this have aspirations to uh, to have a portfolio career at some point in their life. So prior to making that leap of faith, you know, at around 50, mm. what, what were you sensing in yourself that gave you um, a level of confidence that you would be able to do that? Did you identify some particular attributes of your own and you felt that they would ensure that you'd be successful in stepping across into a board career? It was, um, as I see, it really was a leap of faith. And um, whilst I had talked about it with my my wife for uh, some time about, you know, what does the future hold? It really hadn't entered into the conversation that I would really leave the firm. Mm. And uh, mm-hmm. without sort of putting too far a point on it, I really did go home one day uh, and say to my wife, well, you'll never guess what I've done today. <laughs> and uh, and I have to say, you know, she was just enormously supportive of the whole thing. Sure. And uh, I you know, was there an attribute in myself? Look. When I look back, I had always enjoyed uh, the strategic side of what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I think it was more for me about, um, you know, the next, ten to f- the next 10 years was looking an awfully lot like the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And whilst I really had only worked in two different firms, at the former mm-hmm. Coopers and Librand and at Douglas Second Burrell, which then morphed into Pitcher Partners, um, my, I'd done a whole range of different things. Mm. Uh, worked overseas, gone from one division to another, moved from being a specialist tax partner to being a broader business services partner, albeit with a strong tax base. Uh, and over that time, I had gone on to a few uh, not-for-profit boards. Mm-hmm. So I really, uh, you know, I think, and also probably because of that sort of sporting human movement studies mm-hmm. background, uh, one of the earlier ones I went on to was uh, the Board of Tennis Queensland. Mm-hmm. I became the treasurer there and I stayed on that board for about seven years mm. and I ended up uh, sitting on the Tennis Australia Council, mm. uh, which was very exciting and it was at a time when the Australian Open really was just on the verge mm. of becoming... It always was the the fourth Grand Slam, but it was very much the fourth. Sure. There's some other quite senior uh, people on the tennis boards, if I remember correctly, uh, some good people with personal brands that no doubt you could have, uh, mm. you know, learned from and had some mentoring from, I imagine. Yeah, and it's always it's always been very interesting to um, watch those who went before me. Right. And uh, whether that's a function of being, you know, the youngest of, of three boys and mm-hmm. seeing two older brothers go through it all and yeah. you can watch that and think, boy, I'm glad I didn't do that. Sure. Or that looks like a good idea. And uh, so I think observing what other people do and mm-hmm. how they do it mm-hmm. um, has been, um, yeah, has really been pivotal mm-hmm. in my decision-making. Sure. And that was a voluntary board? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So from what you're saying, mm-hmm. um, the, you know, your sort of interim step into the board space was uh, 
earning some stripes uh, in an NFP environment uh, before you start to get paid board positions. Absolutely. Right. In, in every case. Yeah. In every case. And that's a tactic that you recommend to others? Yeah. 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 Without a doubt. And mm. I think that, and a lot of people do ask me and say, you know, yeah, I'd really like, you know, I'd like to do what you're doing. Uh, and I say, yeah, I suspect maybe it looks better from the outside. Uh, but, um, you know, to cut your teeth on those not-for-profit boards, and I would really say to them, because I've done my time on every conceivable form of not-for-profit board. Mm -hmm. I've sat on the, you know, I've been treasurer for the PNF. I've been, uh, I've sat on a number of different arts boards, mm -hmm. on, a, on art gallery boards, and uh, you have to bring to those, whether you're being paid or not, you have to bring to those, I think, the same degree of responsibility and uh, attitude, regardless of whether you're being paid or not. Mm. And was that part of your you know, strategic thinking process, though, or more just happenstance that, uh, happen chance that you uh, had those NFP roles and that opened up the door to uh, paid board gigs moving forward? Probably a bit of both. Mm -hmm. uh, I I enjoyed the space very much, and uh, it just gave me a, um, in a sense, it gave me something else to do outside of the uh, the day to day work that I was mm -hmm. doing uh, in professional practice. Mm. And the firm were happy with that. And the firm, the firm was very happy to do that. And I, and I think I was fortunate at the time that I had mm -hmm. partners who allowed me, mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, to engage in that. And ultimately, you know, it, it does broaden an individual's network as mm. well. And I think that the, you know, to a large extent, the firm benefited from mm -hmm. that. Um, because I think it is very hard, sorry, it's very easy, I think, as a practising accountant to just uh, sit there and you know, wait for the work to roll in. I think I was told very early in my career that you, you don't get new clients you know, sitting behind your desk eating your lunch. Mm. And, uh, and I think that applies across the board. Sure. I mean, you're out to lunch every day, but it does mean that you know, it's worthwhile getting out there mm -hmm. and, excuse me, getting out there and meeting meeting lots of people and being on boards and ultimately being on, you know, meeting senior people, as you said, certainly at Tennis Australia was fabulous. You mm -hmm. know, the connections that you'd make at a place like that are just uh, are very rewarding and uh, these connections become lifelong connections. Mm. And so tell us a little bit of, of then uh, how it rolled out from there. Um, Tennis Australia and Tennis Queensland and then, you know, moving into... Um, it seems there's some art-related uh, uh, directorship and chairmanship. So, mm -hmm. so what were they? Well, I, I've always had a strong interest in the arts. Uh, probably comes from my mother, who's got a, who's got a lovely art collection of uh, uh, Australian contemporary painters. And um, I can certainly remember as a child being taken along to the old Philip Bacon Gallery before right. before it was the biggest uh, and most su successful uh, gallery private gallery in the country and, and to all sorts of things and going along to those. Uh, so I, yeah, I've collected you know, a modest, you know, I have a modest collection myself. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that, um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, just more in terms of, you know, your board career, uh, step through, you know, as you move from one right. board to the next. Look, I think that uh, the art boards were great. Yeah. Because that actually gives you, because uh, they're all 
NGOs mm-hmm. in a sense. So they're, they're funded to a greater or lesser extent, often lesser, uh, by different levels of government. Gives you some exposure to um, the, the government sector and the interplay between you know, member-based bodies and those that are, um, um, you know, and those that receive funding as well. Uh, so that was, look, that was a really good, that was a really good start. And, uh, and I think that, um, I suppose one of the ones which, another one which I think was a, a turning point was going onto the board of the uh, Office of Economic Development okay. for the City of Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And again, that was really through through connections, uh, one of the um, one of the things that I had done at school was I had uh, studied schoolboy Indonesian right all, all the way through. So I had five years of that, so it wasn't bad. It wasn't great, and um, uh, and a fellow by the name of Richard Joel, who was the CEO at the time of the mm-hmm. Office of Economic Development, uh, I came to know him just through general business circles. Uh, he invited me on to the well. Sorry, through him I was invited by the then Lord Mayor onto the uh, Brisbane Semarang Sister City Committee. Okay. And uh, and then fairly rapidly, and I think it was a bit unfortunate, but I think that, anyway the the chair actually probably about six to twelve months after I came onto that committee passed away suddenly, right. and uh, who was uh, a well known Brisbane businessman. And um, and my schoolboy Indonesian had been transformed into, you know, Ian speaks Indonesian fluent right. pretty rapidly. So I was asked to chair it, uh, which I did. And I, in fact, still chair that committee okay. uh, today. So um, it, that was a really, you know, for me, that was a great entree mm-hmm. into um, uh, Brisbane City Council. Sure. And I have been involved with them in one form or another uh, to this very day mm-hmm. and um, from there I went on, I was invited on to the, to the board of the Office of Economic Development uh, and at that time I, um, so I stayed on that board for some time, several other, uh, Nigel Shamia was the chair at mm-hmm. the time and then after that uh, Annabel Chaplin became the chair and then I was the deputy right. chair and okay. ultimately became the chairman. Mm-hmm. And uh, then a few years later, under a under a subsequent Lord Mayor, Brisbane, um, Brisbane Marketing was merged with the Office of Economic Development. Right. Uh, and of course, there were two boards, uh, two organisations. At the time, Brisbane Marketing was substantially bigger mm-hmm. than the Office of Economic Development, two mm-hmm. quite different mandates. And uh, it was a very good move, and I was very supportive of that merger, and uh, through um, one way or another, I became I became the chair the chairman of the merged entity. So mm-hmm. we really we backed the OED into into a new structure with a new constitution, but mm-hmm. we backed it in under the the banner of Brisbane Marketing. Mm-hmm. And for people who um, are listening to the podcast who aren't from Brisbane or are from Brisbane are familiar with you know this term or organisation Brisbane Marketing, but not really much about what they do, mm. well, you know, give, us a sense, give us a sense of some of the things that have been achieved uh, by mm. Brisbane Marketing under your chairmanship over the last few years. So, um, so in two parts, Brisbane Marketing is the economic development agency for the city. Mm-hmm. So we're a wholly owned subsidiary. 
uh, of the city and we have yeah, one shareholder and we report directly through to, to the Lord Mayor and to, through the Lord Mayor's office. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's a great, um, it's a great opportunity to, to work closely with the Lord Mayor of a day. And um, what does it do? Look, we have a range of, you know, we've got seven different business units. We are involved in the delivery of major events for the city, the delivery of conventions for the city. Uh, a big part of what we do is investment attraction, mm-hmm. and that's generally what they call FDI, foreign direct investment, into mm-hmm. the city. Mm-hmm. We've got a, a strong focus on um, uh, on Asia and China in particular, but we also have attracted businesses to come. So it's not about attracting people to come and buy land or property in Brisbane. It's about bringing business to the city. It's Mm -hmm. about... uh, uh, So we've had Spanish companies, companies from the UK, etc. Over over the time, um, I've also, you know, really as part of my role as chairman, I've also chaired, and I still do, the the Lord Mayor's Economic Development Steering Committee, Mm -hmm. which is delivered two very significant reports for the city. The first one was in 2011, Mm -hmm. which was um, the Window of Opportunity report, which really was designed to talk about or address the situation from a city perspective is what will happen to Brisbane when the mining boom finishes. Right. And we delivered that in 2011. Right, very uh, timely. It was almost prophetic, really, because... Uh, look, it was evident that things were going to slow down, that the, the capital investment phase was going to uh, turn into the delivery phase, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't think it was, we didn't think it was going to happen that quickly. Mm-hmm. It was very, very timely. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it's given Brisbane a great head start in terms of what are we going to do. And many, we had in that report 70 or 80 recommendations which we presented to the Lord Mayor and uh, he came back and said, well, you know, what are your key priorities here? You know, give, me, give me 10 or 15 of the best and tell me how much it might cost to deliver, which we did. And, uh, and these included a range of things like the appointment of a chief digital officer for mm-hmm. the city. And we were, in fact, the first city in Australia to uh, appoint right. a chief digital officer mm-hmm. and probably only the second in the world mm. to do so. And New York was the only other one at okay. the time. Uh, and it's, it was a massive shift in the in the, in the thinking mm. uh, of the city and about what the city can do uh, going forward. And um, at the time, and we presented that and we costed it out. And I thought, oh, well, this will be interesting because it cost a lot of money mm-hmm. to deliver this. And to give credit to the Lord Mayor, uh, he essentially funded the whole lot. He said, "Here you go, go forth and deliver." So that was in 2011, and then uh, just um, this year, uh, we've delivered another report through the steering committee uh, called the um, Brisbane 2022 Strategic Action Plan. Mm -hmm. So it's the next stage, it's the follow-up from the Window of Opportunity Report, Mm -hmm. and it's now looking out to the next five to seven years Mm -hmm. through to 2022, saying, what is it that we want Brisbane to look like in 2022? What are the jobs that uh, you know, my my kids are going to have sure. in 2022? What will the landscape look like? Are they going to are they going to be working in mining services, or are mm-hmm. they going to be working in um, 
uh, you know, digital marketing. So it's a very, um, you know, I've enjoyed it enormously because it's a terrific opportunity to be involved in the, uh, you know, setting of the strategy mm-hmm. for a city. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not many people get to do that. Sure. I find it. I find it very exciting, and um, you know, it's we are. You know, you're working with big numbers. Mm-hmm. You're working with a city, and you're also working with mm-hmm. a uh, a wide range of businesses, which is something that I've always sure. uh, that I've always enjoyed. And then the other interesting thing, you know, about your portfolio is the fact that uh, you've also you're the chair of a pretty significant private um, uh, engineering style consulting firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you nicely you've got your NFP, your uh, uh, your sort of arts and entertainment, the work you're doing for Brisbane Marketing, and mm. tell us now a little bit about Place. Well, Place Design Group is a um, uh, it is urban planning and design firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's head office here in Brisbane, and uh, and I came onto that board look simply because the firm at the time was looking to appoint its first uh, non-shareholding, non-executive director. Uh, my name came up, and I met with the uh, the directors. Uh, there was a fellow who uh, was the existing chairman. He was a bit worn out. And in fact, he, he's pretty much my age, and he sort of said, "Oh, look, I'm just getting a bit tired." Right. Of this. And I said, oh, "I think I know. I think I know exactly where you're coming from." But um, one thing led to another, and I was appointed as as the chairman. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, place is a, a fascinating business. Uh, it's head office here in Brisbane. We've got uh, five offices in Australia from Townsville, Sunshine Coast, Brisbane, Gold Coast, Sydney. Uh, but we've also got a number of offices overseas. So we now have uh, four offices in China, uh, Beijing, Shenzhen, uh, Chengdu and Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've had the opportunity to go to China to see those each and every one of those businesses on a number of occasions. And um, I mean, we don't go we don't go a day in Australia without reading about China mm. on the front page of the financial press. Uh, so it's very interesting to see firsthand what is happening over there. Sure. And it's uh, you know we've got a very strong business over there. It's a very it's a very strong model, mm-hmm. and um, and that model I think is simply that, you know, for example, our um, the principal, and we have an Australian shareholder principal in each one of those offices. Mm-hmm. The fellow who runs Shanghai, which is probably the biggest, and uh, uh, of all of those four offices, he's lived up there for eight years now. Mm. You know, it, it has become his life, and. And when I talk to other businesses, uh, people say, oh, look, I'm trying to track, I'm trying to crack that China market. And gee, you know, I've been up there three or four times this mm. year and you know, I just can't seem to crack it. Well, I think you know, the answer is you've just got, you've got to have someone there. You've got sure. to be there, yeah. move there mm-hmm. and, uh, and be part of the fabric mm-hmm. of uh, Chinese business wherever mm-hmm. you are. And you've got to treat it like anything else. And if we had somebody coming to Brisbane three times a year and was wondering why they couldn't crack the market, I think we'd know why. Mm-hmm. So, um, but place has been interest, you know, very interesting for me. I, I do like working in that um, larger private company space. Yeah, uh, they can be very fast moving. 
Uh, we opened an office in KL uh, not so long ago, okay. and um, yeah, and I just like that process. It's mm-hmm. it's almost diametrically opposite to what might happen sure. in in government, for sure. example, where you've got to jump through a thousand hoops mm. uh, to you know get something often fairly simple done. Mm. But here you can make the decision mm. and uh, and just do it. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good, but you find out very very quickly. Mm. And I, I like working in that more agile commercial environment. Mm-hmm. And so, um, coming back to your own skill set, obviously being chair of a number of different organisations simultaneously, and uh, they all have different needs and uh, uh, different challenges that are going on for them at different times. How do you, uh, what, what do you think it is about you that has enabled you to give good quality leadership um, uh, in such a sort of multifaceted environment? Oh, look, it's. It's a good question, and it uh, involves a, a degree of self-analysis that I'm not, not sure I, I possess. I'd have uh, to check in with your brother. Yeah, I might have to check. <laughs> it, might be, it might be better to ask uh, someone else in the family about that. But look, I think it's um, I have always enjoyed getting to understand what makes a business tick, mm-hmm. what makes it work. So when I came, for example, onto the place board. It took easily the first 12 months to come to grips with the nature of the business, the people, the shareholders, what are the issues for them? And uh, and I like to learn about that. So I think if there is one thing, it's a desire to keep on learning and to Mm -hmm. understand. Uh, I would probably describe myself more as a uh, listener Mm -hmm. than a talker. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that does help. Um, So... I think that yeah, another part of the skill set. I've just got a, I've got a strong financial skill set there, which has been developed over you know, quite some time, and that is very very useful because people in their respective businesses they're there and they are successful because they are good at what mm. they do. Mm. They are not necessarily good financial managers. Right. Uh, my career, I think, has developed that skill set, but I've just had, and I've always loved it, I have seen hundreds, thousands of different businesses operating. Mm. And to me, I think you can look at them and say, in a financial sense, many of the same principles apply across Mm -hmm. all of them. Mm -hmm. So I don't pretend to be a... a world-class marketer of cities. I'm certainly not a town planner or a designer, but I can bring, and I think I bring as chair, a a perspective uh, to those businesses because everybody everybody is in business really to be successful. Mm And um, Brisbane marketing is uh, is not dissimilar. We, you know, we want that business to be a success. It's mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's not about profit, mm-hmm. but it's about delivery of a range of sure delivery on a range of key performance indicators. And um, and it is it's gratifying to look back and see that Brisbane marketing is now you know, four to five to you know six times the size of what it was when I first became chair mm. uh, some years ago mm. and uh, and to see that you do have the you know the support of your stakeholder they see that you're doing it well yep. and uh, so you get to do more things so it, look it, it's a hard you know, it's a hard one to answer mm. but it is a uh, look I think to listen to what people to try and understand what your stakeholders want. Mm-hmm. And uh, so stakeholder management, shareholder management, just hearing what 
people want what they want to do and then helping them convert that into a, a meaningful plan. Mm-hmm. And I really do believe in mm-hmm. you, know, the, you know those sayings, you know, if you haven't got a plan, well, you don't know where you're going. Yeah, and it's yeah. so cliched and it's so simple, but um, the absence of a plan in businesses out there is... Uh, uh, is enormous. Oh, I'm, look, no doubt. Although it's interesting with uh, how techno- technology and just culturally the world is changing so fast. Mm. Uh, the uh, traditional five-year plan, uh, uh, it's hard to even keep a six-month plan now, uh, mm. certainly in my business. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things they talk about is this um, relationship between the chair and the CEO, mm-hmm. obviously a critical relationship to get right on both sides. You know, what? what's your view on... Um, the best way to manage those relationships? Yeah, I think one of the best quotes I heard about that relationship between a chair and a CEO is that uh, um, it's important to be friendly but not to be friends. Right. And um, it because, you know, sometimes, well, sometimes, look, it's inevitable that um, you have to, um, you know, make a hard call mm. sometimes with a, C- you know, with a CEO. Mm-hmm. And um, look, I would have to say, although it might be a good idea to ask the CEOs, but I think right. I, I think I've got a very good relationship sure. uh, <clears throat> with the CEOs uh, that I work with. Um, that look, it's a um, it's a tricky relationship. I think that um, I've always been very conscious of the CEO has his or her job to do, mm-hmm. and I have mine. And uh, particularly chairing the board, um, you've got a lot of people around a boardroom table who are mm-hmm. very good mm-hmm. at what they do. And the tendency or the inclination for board members, particularly new ones, to mm-hmm. go, oh, I can do that, I'll yeah, get yeah. involved, I'll help out. Sure. Um, you really have to step back and let the CEO do his or her job. Yes. You know, they've got to be able to do their job without being interfered mm-hmm. with. And... Uh, encouraging the CEO to use the board for what it's there for, which is to provide that strategic advice, mm-hmm. to help guide the CEO through mm-hmm. you know, what is always a really tricky path. Sure. And um, so I, I try to do that. I, mm-hmm. you know, could I list out the, the things that you do? It's probably hard, but I, I work very much on an as-needs Basis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know you can go for days, weeks, months where things just run all very smoothly, mm-hmm. and it's and it's lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you know inevitably issues arise uh, where you do get involved in, and that's where I think the chair and the chair carries a much greater load, as you would know, mm-hmm. than the other directors. Sure. Yeah, uh, it's up to the chair to bring the directors in and, mm-hmm. and to involve them uh, where you see fit, but. Uh, I think that you know, just building that relationship, ensuring that you, you know, ensuring that you listen to the CEO. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes what you're hearing is not the exact message, so you've got to dig around. Mm-hmm. But it's the chair's responsibility and the board's responsibility that when you see an issue arising, mm-hmm. and it may well be with the stakeholder or the shareholders, um, that's when you've got to. Get more involved. Mm-hmm. You have to start digging around mm. uh, because you don't want to find yourself in a position where somebody says, you know, 
well, it was obvious that there was something going on there. Why didn't you go and, mm. you know, why don't you mm. dig a little deeper and have a look? And it's no excuse to say, well, that was operational. I didn't sure. want to get involved. Yeah. You have to. And you have to then be able to satisfy yourself that, um, and I always say to myself, you know, if somebody external to this whole matter, issue, conversation, whatever, had a look at what you're doing, mm. uh, would they be satisfied that you've done mm. everything that you should mm. have done? So you're almost talking about bringing a sense of intuition to the role, uh, being experienced enough to be able to see the subtle signs that something is deserved of uh, more attention. Mm. Mm. Yeah, look, I think that um, intuition plays a... Look, I think intuition and gut feel plays a big role in what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed that change in me over the years that when... Uh, you know, when I was younger and I think still learning, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I'm still learning today, mm-hmm. but if things came up in business and I would look at that and I would think, I, I don't get it. Mm. I can't see why they are doing this, but I assume that he or she knows what they're doing, so mm. I'll run with it. Mm-hmm. And often, often, sometimes it would just all turn to mush. Right. And you think, oh, gee whiz, you know, I was actually right. You know, I don't understand why they didn't see it. Mm. And, uh, and I think over time I'm starting to trust my own mm. intuition more. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's about believing in yourself. Sure. And, uh, uh, and you see things happening and you think, no, I don't actually think this is right at all. Mm. And so I probably are having uh, more inclined to you know, have an intervention earlier yeah. these days uh, than I would have, you know, five or ten years ago. Mm. I, I think... Uh um, men in particular talking about gut feel rather than this women's intuition, but uh, it's definitely becoming more uh, spoken about and, and generally understood that um, trusting the gut is um, uh, a, is an equally valid way to manage businesses, uh-huh. sticking purely to the you know dot, the numbers and the traditional uh, management by reporting, I suppose. Um, so it's interesting that you say that. Mm. Um, when you look across your brand, broad range of uh, responsibilities and so on, what would you say are the elements of it you enjoy the most? Oh, what do I enjoy the most? Uh, I enjoy very much the uh, you know, getting a, a greater level of understanding mm-hmm. of the space that I'm working in. And um, and in a sense, that's, uh, that could be... You know, a weak point for me because once I do understand that, I have an inclination uh, to go. Oh, okay, I get that. You know, what, what's the next interesting thing to do? Mm-hmm. But look, you know, in each of the roles that I'm in, I you know, so uh, there, there's a great deal of longevity there. You know, it's mm-hmm. one of those things that you observe in your own behaviour. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, that's. Um, that is a big part of it. And again, I say, what was the question? <laughs> well, what are the, of your current breadth of roles, what, what elements do you enjoy the most? Uh, the, the bits that I enjoy the most. So I think learning about the business, I think the people. Mm-hmm. You know, I really enjoy working with a, a range of different people. There's so many people out there in business uh, trying to make the, their way in the world. And I like business. I like getting involved with them and I... Throughout my career, I've made many good 
friends, good enduring friends, and I like to talk about business. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm very interested, as I say, I'm very interested in the share market, mm -hmm. and I've had some, uh, you know, I, I've, I've learned an enormous amount. Mm. Uh, certainly when I was in practice and even even now, sometimes I think it's it's almost not fair because you know, I'm learn I think I learn as much mm -hmm. as they do mm -hmm. uh, from the interaction. So mm -hmm. yeah, look, it's the networking, it's staying in touch with people, it's being kept up to date. I enjoy very much working with, uh, certainly with younger people mm -hmm. and uh, I'm very, very interested in that new technology mm. space in... Uh, uh, in startup hubs, you know, which is something that's a very topical issue sure. at Brisbane Marketing at the mm -hmm. moment. Uh, you know, the work, the workplace is changing. It is, cha and it's a permanent change. It's not a fad. And um, to see those changes happening, to be involved at a city level in those changes, mm. to uh, build on an idea and a recommendation to engage with people, you know, to articulate a, a position on something and then have it endorsed uh, is um, is fabulous. So sure. th th those are all the things. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it's the connection mm. out there with business and mm. uh, with people that I really do enjoy. Okay. And what would you say you enjoy the least? Uh, I'm very fortunate. There's not much that I don't like okay. about what I'm doing at the moment. I uh, And look, I absolutely think that I'm, I'm fortunate to do what I'm doing. I'm lucky in terms of the people I've met. I've had some fabulous uh, mentors over time. Um, yeah, I think, look, you tend to forget the things that, that, that you don't like every now and then. You know, probably now there's one or two things going on which I think, oh, you know, <laughs> really? <laughs> do I have to get up and, and deal with this? But uh, but you do, and, sure. you, and you learn on the way through. So in a broad sense, in a global sense, is there anything about what I'm doing now that I don't like? Absolutely not. In the day-to-day -day operational stuff of what I do, uh, yeah, look, mm. really, there, there are probably a couple mm. of things, and it's, you know, it's dealing with sometimes with people who might mm. have... Um, not necessarily the same agenda mm -hmm. uh, that I have. Mm -hmm. uh, that's always interesting. Mm -hmm. And there's still a little bit of me in there that says, I'm sure they know what they're doing. Right. But um, maybe they, and oftentimes they do know what they're doing, but it's not what I'm doing. Right. Yeah, I, I understand that also uh, uh, working in the executive recruitment industry and uh, my industry has a certain reputation and sometimes uh, trying to get people to see beyond the reputation can be a little difficult. Um, mm. But uh, so there's, yeah. they're the things that keep life interesting, I suppose. Mm. So no doubt a lot of people come to you, uh, either friends or associates or even strangers, I imagine, and say to you, look, Ian, I really admire what you've done. Um, you've built a really interesting and broad board career. Um, how, how do I do that? How can mm. I walk that same path, you know, um, what are the typical answers that you give to them? I think you're right. I do get asked this more and more these days. Uh, part of me still remains surprised that I do get asked to do it. Uh, I would say get involved in the not-for-profit sector. Cut your teeth there because you really, you've got to run that just as if you're being paid. Mm -hmm. Same degree of governance, 
uh, I would encourage people to get involved on all of those things. Get involved on your PNC, get involved in an arts board, in a sporting club, and see what's going on there and really try to bring some of your own skill set to that. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly encourage people to do the Institute of Company Directors course. Yeah. Uh, I think that is, that is very valuable and I guess it's probably becoming a sort of almost a benchmark qualification mm -hmm. for people who want to go on boards. Uh, so I would say, yeah, cut your teeth on that, build your network and try to develop a particular unique skill set. Mm. And that's hard. Mm. Uh, it may not be unique. Uh, me uh, having a, a, a financial skill set is far from being unique. Mm -hmm. But you've got to be able to apply it and mm. apply it intelligently sure. to the company or the organisation uh, that you that you're working with. Mm, mm. Uh, on virtually all of these uh, boards that I've been on, it always, for me, started off as a, you know, being the finance director or mm -hmm. here, uh, heading up the audit committee mm -hmm. or something like that. But once you're sitting around that boardroom table, you can then bring to that table some other skills. Mm. Uh, chairs come and go, directors come and go. Mm. So you can always just put your hand up and say, I'm interested in doing that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, look, I, I, would, I don't think there's any short answer. Um, one, th one thing that I do tell people is, to be honest, I mean, you wouldn't do it for the money. Mm. Um, it is not a fabulously well-paid area, um, but it is very rewarding in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. But um, oh, don't give up your day job. Mm to do it, but if you are in a position where you can uh, avail you know, you have got the time and the inclination to build that, uh, do so because you have to make that leap of faith. You have to stop doing what you're doing. Mm. In a sense, you've got to mm. give up your day job mm. if you want to start putting yourself out there as taking on um, other board roles. Mm. I, I pretty much say all of that, yeah, but and I think the one thing is, uh, a lot of people feel a desire to step into a portfolio career because they just think that that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And it's almost an egotistical keeping up with the Joneses rather than a genuine heartfelt desire to actually want to be a non-executive director. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, they get excited about it without really taking the time to look within themselves and say, is this actually what I want? So uh, Peter Bertels was on the uh, podcast the other day and uh, uh, he's the CEO of Super Retail Group. Mm -hmm. And um, he, we, I asked him a similar question. He said, well, you have to make a decision as to whether you want to be a CEO or you want to be a great CEO. Mm -hmm. And again, I agree completely. There's a lot of people who say, I want to be a CEO or I want to be a non-executive director. But, you know, do they want to actually be an expert at their craft? Mm -hmm. um, it sounds from, you know, the work that you've done and, and, you know, the not only the extent of work but the breadth of work and so on has given you that foundation to allow you to have expertise in your um, yeah. what for you is really your craft. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Look, I, I think that's um, there's a lot of truth in what you say. I, th I think you're right in that is that... Um, you know, being a director, you know, having a portfolio career is not something which is easy to manage. Mm. Uh, you've got to really do it all yourself. It sure. took me a long time to adjust to uh, a new lifestyle without, well, a new work lifestyle, you know, mm. without all of that support that you get in a 
professional practice and um, it's very rewarding when you do do it but there's a lot of people out there who would have a huge amount to offer as a CEO mm. you know, or a COO or a, you know anybody in that C-suite um, there's um, you know, there's fantastic opportunities there there really are and uh, I think there's some sort of romantic idea of being on a board mm. and uh, making all the strategic decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's, look, it's not really like that. Mm. Um, it's, uh, you know, to, I treat it like a job. Sure. You just got to understand what the job is. Mm-hmm. So where's Ian in 10 years? You know, uh, you've got um, uh, yourself positioned now. You've, you said life's pretty good. There's not really much that I'm not enjoying. What, what, what's next for you? Look, I think that um, I'm very conscious that uh, directorships change Mm -hmm. and uh, look, I'm I'm not a believer in get to your 10 years and you've got to go because there's so many examples across the country in the listed and the unlisted uh, scene where directors have been there for many years Mm -hmm. and still contribute. So I'd like to think that I'll stay on boards or I'll go on to other boards Mm -hmm. uh, where there is a... um, where there's a need for my skill set. I suppose I spend more and more time on my own family office as such, and uh, that is something which I enjoy a great deal. Yeah. And, um, but could I do that all of the time? Maybe, but, you know, 10 years is a long time. Mm. I can only... I can only plan out for the next next few years. <laughs> sure. I think I've still got a lot to offer. Yeah, uh, I like doing what I'm doing, and um, if uh, you know, there might be other boards out there, sure. might be other organisations who uh, would see some benefit in having me. If if there are, that'd be great. If there aren't, then right. you know, there there is so much to do. So, if for example, there was somebody listening to this and they were keen to engage in a conversation with you about a potential directorship with their organisation, you'd welcome that? Absolutely. Oh, great. Okay, well, we'll uh, make sure that uh, in the show notes we put a link to Ian's LinkedIn profile Mm -hmm. uh, and the various uh, organisations he's currently on the board of uh, to get a better flavour. And so just to close it out, um, you know, to look uh, at the non-work side of things, so what do you do when you're not at work? How do you uh, keep yourself... Uh, fit and happy and and, um, around your family and so on? Yeah, look, it's all, um, I think that sort of early sporting life has uh, given me a good perspective. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we studied back then was leisure studies. Now, we're all, by the time I got to my age, supposed to have an enormous amount of leisure time. And it's interesting how how things have changed. But, uh, oh, look, I, I like to keep fit. I play a lot of golf. Um, I think my wife made the mistake of buying me a set of clubs for my 50th birthday and uh, so I've taken to that pretty well. I enjoy playing a lot. I do play with Michael, my oldest brother. We play every uh, every Sunday morning when we can and with a other group of people but uh, I, I keep fit. I, you know, I play tennis and I walk and I swim and I play golf. No squash anymore? No, no squash. No squash anymore. It's a bit of a shame really because uh, all the squash courts Certainly in Australia, have all been you know, squash. When I played in you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was enormous. Mm. You know, everybody was playing squash. But mm. then the sporting scene just became very competitive, and it was basketball, and then it was triathlons, mm. and it was indoor cricket, and 
so many other sports and it's real it's, it's a very interesting mm. uh, space to have a look at because you've gone from a place where uh, Australia was just, you know was a leader in the world in squash uh, you know the club that I played at in Barden at one point uh, we had I think four out of the top ten in the world had come right. uh, out of our club so it was a fantastic environment mm. to be involved in but no more squash. I mean, there are still squash courts around, and uh, uh, it is a sport in the. Uh, I think it was a sport the last Commonwealth Games. So hopefully, it still will be in the UK. It's still very popular. Yeah. South Africa, it's popular. I was talking to a guy. I can't remember. I, th- well, I think it was the chair of the Squash Association of Australia or something like mm. that. And he was saying that the real issue is that squash squash courts were on private land yeah. and they've now either been converted to gymnasiums or they've been knocked down mm. and there's been a you know a um, property developed on the site mm. whereas tennis courts um, are often in land where they can't be touched uh-huh. because they're part of a botanical gardens or whatever mm. uh, squash um, uh, the number of centres is a fraction of what it used to be. Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, I remember playing squash back uh, very badly, uh, and uh, I didn't realise apparently it's still a massive global sport. Um, mm. Mm. But you just don't hear much about it in Australia at all. No, you don't. Um, yeah, look, there are still look, there are still courts around. It. Yeah, maybe once again, you know, it will have its day. I, I think the uh, the way it presents on screen as well, it mm-hmm. just never got. I mean, tennis is fabulous to watch mm-hmm. on TV, as we know. Sure, squash is hard, and they've played around for a long time with courts with you know demountable courts mm-hmm. with glass walls or around all sides, mm-hmm. different coloured ball, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, look, I loved watching. Uh, the squash in the last um, at the last Commonwealth Games, mm-hmm. it was fabulous to see, and uh, you know, they actually had a larger court where you know you can play doubles. Um, it's interesting now in the US they now and the US now plays the international game. They mm-hmm. previously had a, a different size, okay. slightly different size right. uh, court. It was more like. Um, Racquetball, I think, okay. a, a much bouncier ball, etc. But they, they're now playing the same game, which is great. Right. Well, thanks very much, Ian. I really appreciated the conversation with you today. Before we just close out, is there anything that you wanted to add or any final comments from your side before we uh, say see you know, um, goodbye to the listeners? No, look, I just think that uh, uh, I uh, go and do... You, know, you don't want to say follow your heart because... A lot of my life has been you know, <laughs> follow, follow your, your brain. Head. Yeah, follow your brain. But you know, follow your heart. But certainly, think about it hard before you before you do make a leap. Sure. And uh, there, it's a big, wide world out there, and there is so much to do. Certainly, in a business sense, and I'd encourage everybody to go out there and have a look for it. Great. Thanks, Ian, and have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks very much, Richard. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ian Clug and got some uh, value out of it in terms of thinking about your own career. I've known Ian for probably six or seven years now, and I'm always fascinated by people who've been able to make balancing multiple stakeholders standing in this true directorship career look easy, and Ian is certainly one of those people. And I found some of his comments quite fascinating in particular talking about the fact that he is approached regularly by people wanting to build a board career and you know 
him taking the time to give them advice around starting their career by engaging in not-for-profit unpaid board roles in order to gain experience and build a personal brand. And if you were to look at Ian Clugg's CV, you'd see that prior to his current range of board roles, he's certainly had, if not a dozen or more, uh, directorships in a wide variety of unpaid capacities. And so I think for those people who are listening to this who truly want to have a board career, uh, it requires you to really accept the fact that in many ways you're starting your career again. And being able to have the perseverance and the tenacity uh, to take on those charitable board responsibilities, often for years at a time, uh, is not necessarily everybody's cup of tea. And I think that uh, one thing that you may not know about Arate Executive is that for over five years now, we have offered board recruitment for -for not-for-profits on a pro bono basis. And so if there are any uh, directors of not-for-profits listening to this podcast, if you ever have a vacancy for a non-executive director, I have many, many people who aspire to take on those roles, and I'd be more than happy to introduce you to qualified and interested parties. So please drop me an email or give me a call to discuss. So I look forward to welcoming you to the next podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week. Thank you.